Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. In many contexts, Australia has often been referred to as the lucky country, with our performance in this latest pandemic no exception. COVID has brought immense disruption to the Australian way of life, but at the same time, there are now opportunities that lie ahead in the post-pandemic rebuild of the Australian economy. There now lies a rare chance for a review and reset of national issues like the right level of immigration, the importance of government taxation and support, with a focus on how it's appropriately applied, to a complete review on the creation and distribution of the nation's energy resources. The challenge now lies ahead for policymakers to leverage and not squander this luck into meaningful change and embrace new thinking to ensure prosperity and equity into this century. It's a huge topic and worthy of a considered approach, so we are lucky to be joined in the studio today by Professor Ross Garneau. Professor Garneau has had a long has had long-standing senior roles as policy advisor, diplomat and businessman dating back to the, the late 1970s. He's currently professor, a professorial research fellow in economics at the University of Melbourne and is the author of numerous publications in scholarly journals into international economics, public finance and economic development, particularly in relation to East Asia and the Southwest Pacific. His recent books include The Great Crash of 2008 with our own David Llewellyn Smith, Dog Days, Australia After the Boom, 40 Years of Reform and Development in China, and Superpower, Australia's Low Carbon Opportunity. Ross has just released a new book entitled Reset, Restoring Australia After the Pandemic Recession, and joins us today to share some highlights and pathways going forward. Professor Ross Garneau, welcome to Nucleus Investment Insights. Good to be with Nucleus. Uh, and also joining us today is uh, one of, as I mentioned, one of Ross's past uh, partners in crime, or maybe partner in tome, uh, and our own chief strategist here at Nucleus Wealth, David Llewellyn Smith. Hello to you, David. G'day, Tim. And sitting alongside, or over the road from Ross, I should say, uh, at the uh, mandated distance, I'm also joined by Nucleus Wealth's head of investments, Damien Classen. How are you going, Damien? Hi, Tim. Lovely. And just a quick reminder that before we get started, if you haven't already, to uh, subscribe and click on the notification bell to be notified of when we go live or have a new webinar to watch or follow us on your preferred podcast platform. We also ask if you'd like to take a moment to click like on the video now to help our show grow. And of course, for those listening in live, feel free to drop in your questions of Ross in the YouTube live stream chat to have them answered along the way. So we'll jump into the agenda for today. So uh, we're going to kick off with uh, some economic background to the uh, pandemic recession, uh, and then we're going to be rolling into the solutions as well. So jumping into, uh, we've sort of uh, earmarked, I guess, some, some key areas of, of note. So full employment, optimal debt, tax, uh, and then rolling into the energy and climate change options uh, in front of us as well. And then, of course, wrapping it all up in an investment outlook and how we can use these themes every day here at Nucleus Wealth. So with no further ado, let's jump into it. And I'll hand over to uh, perhaps Ross to uh, begin by giving us uh, a little bit of background on perhaps why you decided to write the book and, and uh, so, yeah, I guess where, where, you, were, where you were wanting to, uh, to, to guide the, the, the national discussion. Uh, well, uh, assessing where we're at at these uh, big points of decision is what I do. And uh, uh, my wife, Jane, and I spent, uh, spent COVID in Park Alden, right in the middle of Queensland. And the University of Melbourne asked me to fill the empty hours of uh, students and uh, 
uh, and others uh, with, with a series of lectures on uh, the implications of the, the pandemic and uh, what came after it. So the, the book began as uh, a series of six lectures in the middle of last year and uh, put it together as a book after that. And what it seeks to do is assess where we're at. Uh, 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 in the first half of last year, both Australia and the world had the biggest, sharpest uh, downturn uh, the world's ever the world economy's ever seen in a six-month period and the Australian economy's ever seen in a six-month period. Uh, that has implications. And so uh, I wanted to uh, describe and assess where we're at and uh, uh, talk about where we go next. Now, at that time, in the first half of last year, uh, the uh, people in government were talking about the ambition of snapping back to what we had before the, uh, before the pandemic. And uh, uh, when... Uh, uh, I worked through uh, what the, what that would mean. Uh, became pretty clear that uh, uh, first we shouldn't want to go back there. Mm. Uh, they were the dog days, and uh, secondly, uh, we couldn't get back there even if we wanted to. So uh, we've got to do something different. And uh, uh, if we do things differently, then uh, we've got some pretty big opportunities. It can be a, a pretty good future. It can be a future that gives us full employment by 2025, real full employment, not the uh, uh, high unemployment stuck at 5.5% uh, that, that we had during the dog days, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, growing incomes after that. Uh, uh, I think the choice is as stark as that, and uh, the book is framed around Australia's choice between going back to the dog days with things actually being worse than in the period 2013 to 19, mm -hmm. uh, uh, because circumstances will be harder. Uh, and uh, restoring Australia after the pandemic recession. Okay, very good. Mm. So, so, and maybe just to give a bit of um, terms of reference to uh, to anyone who hasn't read Dog Days and and sort of the, the idea behind that you know, low wage, wage low wage growth and and low um, per capita GDP growth. Maybe if you want to give. A bit yeah, of the the comparison both with uh, early the two decades earlier and with other countries is pretty stark. Uh, we had continuous uh, economic growth without recession from 1991, the end of the last recession, and uh, and the pandemic until the recession hit in the first half of 2020. 28 years of unbroken economic growth, uh, the longest continuous period uh, without recession that Australia's ever had, not only Australia, than any developed countries ever had. Pretty extraordinary period. Mm. Uh, but when you look closely, uh, that wasn't a continuous uh, uh, story of, of good economic performance and prosperity. It breaks into three periods. The first decade, up to about 2002, was the uh, productivity boom uh, on the back of the uh, Hawke reforms of the 80s, uh, uh, continued uh, with, with uh, diminishing uh, momentum uh, through the Keating years and the first few years of Howard. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, the, the, those reforms were reflected in uh, the, the developed world's strongest productivity growth. Uh, we were top of the world league table uh, on uh, productivity growth in the 90s uh, and the first year or two of the, the century. Well, that's an unusual position for Australia to be. We, we won the wooden spoon in most, most decades of the 20th century. Uh, we're the worst performer of all the countries that are now developed uh, in the first seven decades of uh, uh, the 20th century were the best performer in the, in the 1990s. So that's a pretty interesting story. Mm. Uh, and then um, things, productivity growth petered out from a, 
first couple of years of after the first couple of years of this century, uh, but incomes growth kept going. Uh, output per person uh, continued to grow, and uh, incomes growth grew even more. For another decade, uh, incomes grew. Australian prosperity uh, grew uh, on the back of what I call the China resources boom. This was driven driven by the world's most populous country, more people than in all the developed countries put together, growing faster over a sustained period than any economy ever had. Not only faster, but with greater resource intensity and energy intensity than any other uh, growing country had ever had. Uh, all of those things gave Australia a huge lift in uh, terms of trade uh, and uh, in opportunities for uh, productive investment. And, uh, and that's what kept Australian incomes growing until the end of the China boom in, uh, uh, I date that as 2012, uh, China's adoption of a new model of economic growth. And uh, uh, the, the change in gear in China uh, towards a new model of growth that uh, gave less emphasis to investment, more to consumption, more to services, less to heavy industry, uh, more to uh, uh, environmental concerns, uh, less to growth at any cost. And that change of gear uh, had com completely changed downwards the trajectory of growth in demand for uh, minerals and energy. Uh, so that uh, uh, from 2013 onwards, uh, well, we didn't have the China boom. Uh, and uh, economic growth kept going, uh, but uh, it was a very different form of economic growth. Between 2013 and 19, the years I call the dog days, uh, uh, we, we had uh, the lowest growth in output per person of all developed countries, uh, much lower than the OECD average, low, very much lower than the US, uh, lower even than Japan, uh, which we think of as a, uh, a bit of a basket case uh, in economic growth. Well, we, we were lower than that basket, and uh, 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 and uh, Australians uh, weren't much aware of that. Uh, I think because total economic growth without recession kept going mainly on the back of, of unusually high immigration. Also, uh, immigration that changed in character. In the 21st century, a much higher proportion of Australian immigration has been uh, un um, temporary migrants, although uh, temporary migrants were often given the, the label of skilled uh, workers in, in practice. It contained a very high proportion of uh, people with, without uh, highly valuable skills. Uh, so we had growth in total output, but not growth in output per person. A couple of other measures of underperformance during the dog days. Um, uh, a real household income per capita did not grow at all over seven years. Now, that's very unusual in a developed country other than in war and catastrophe uh, since the Industrial Revolution. It's uh, uh, very unusual in Australian history. Uh, uh, you don't find... Uh, uh, much more than seven years in, in the Great Depression where uh, you've you got no growth at all in real per capita uh, household uh, income. Uh, uh, another measure is uh, underperformance on unemployment. Uh, we didn't have the very high unemployment that the US, Europe, uh, other developed countries had during the, the global financial crisis and the immediate aftermath, mainly because two things. Uh, one, we had uh, very quick and large uh, fiscal and monetary stimulus, uh, bigger than uh, most other countries. Secondly, 
uh, China stoked up its uh, its economy. Uh, you had an re- even bigger fiscal stimulus in, in response to the <laughs> yeah. global financial crisis, and and that for a few years uh, kept the uh, resource side of the Australian economy going. Uh, so we didn't have the big dip that uh, other developed countries had, but by 2013, the, just comparing it with the US, as I do in the book, uh, our unemployment rate was still about five and a half. And it hadn't increased much since uh, immediately after the GFC. Uh, the US started after GFC uh, 10 and uh, had come down a couple of percent by 2013, but was several percentage points above Australia. Then during the dog days, we got stuck. That we were as high at the end of the, of the dog days as at the beginning, and the US went down from several percentage points higher than us, uh, down to 3.5%. Uh, so uh, we uh, were a miserable performer compared with other developed countries, um, US a very clear comparison. And the fourth measure of underperformance, um, the growth in underemployment. Not only uh, did uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, unemployment rate get stuck at a rel- what I think is a relatively high level, unnecessarily high level, but uh, unemployment's measured by uh, people uh, having worked for an hour, an hour in, in the week before the survey. Well, uh, uh, those who, who couldn't get as many hours work as they wanted increased enormously mm. uh, through the dog days. Uh, underemployment increased enormously. Jeff Borland, uh, University of Melbourne, he puts out a very interesting uh, periodic note on what's happening in the labour market. He put one out yesterday saying that uh, um, if you take into account underemployment, then uh, uh, we should, uh, uh, then the growth of underemployment should. Uh, uh, should lower by uh, a full percentage point the, le- the rate of unemployment that we can consider to be full employment. It, it was big in the whole story. So poor performance uh, compared with other countries, poor performance on productivity and incomes growth uh, compared with the first two decades of the long expansion. They were the dog days. Excellent, thanks. So, so that's that's a very good, very good wrap up. I, was going, I had some other leading questions, but I don't think I need to. I don't think I need to ask those because I think you've, you've hit on most of the points. I wanted to sort of give people a frame of reference. Um, the, the next sort of what I wanted to sort of ask a lot of questions about, sort of going through this, is is not so much what's in the book because um, you know, you've done a very comprehensive view of it. I guess what I'm interested in is some of the likelihoods, and, and especially from us from an investment perspective, I'm looking at some of this going. Yes, I think that looks like a good plan. But um, I don't know if there's political support for that one, and so uh, and I guess what that's what I want to try and gauge for you is some of these um, likely how much likelihoods and how much extra work really needs to be done at the political level for some of these, um, or how imminent different different ones are. And so maybe we could start with the with the full employment. So so you speak about sort of two two main paths: um, domestic spending and and um, uh, and uh, exports. And so on one side, we need to get the, uh, the Aussie dollar down to, to increase our, our, our competitiveness. And on, on the other side, um, we need to get people spending. Um, and you know, I guess my take would be um, uh, increasing the, um, or sorry, getting away from inequality, getting back to more, more equal will probably help on that side. It seems as if the current government's plan though is juice the housing market and hope that that flows through to the rest of the economy. I don't know whether, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a cop-out for us to say the government's not doing anything, uh, so, right. uh, so so things are hopeless. We live in a democracy. Yep. It's up to us. If, uh, the, if the public discussion isn't pushing the government into doing the right thing, then we've failed. 
as, as citizens. So uh, that, that's one of the things this book's well, about. Okay, so, so maybe maybe what I should rephrase it: which one do we need to do more work to to convince the government? And which one are they, are they almost there on? I suppose. Well, I think it was a very open question when I put this book to bed late last year, or the mm. uh, I, I did a bit of an update after the U.S. election. So yeah, uh, that was made a big difference, obviously, because yeah. that was such a big story. So, uh, but mm. I suppose the book was to bed by. Uh, uh, a, a bit before that, um, and uh, I, I said then, uh, after the budget in October, that the budget left open the question, the October budget left open the question of whether we would choose uh, post-pandemic dog days or post-pandemic restoration of Australia. Uh, we we did a, uh, a, a pretty good job, I think, on fiscal expansion. Now, uh, uh, we had to do that or we would have had a very much deeper slump. It was deep anyway Yep. Uh, in the first half of last year. Uh, now, there's a lot of criticism of a lot of wasted money, uh, a lot of money going to uh, uh, people and companies that didn't need it. Uh, it'll squirrel it away so it's not even there for uh, keeping up demand when they spend it in future. Uh, uh, and you can make all of those uh, uh, criticisms in in retrospect, but uh, I, I've been a uh, an, an official with those sorts of roles in the past. Uh, the uh, the Treasury had to come up with the the package very quickly. The government had to respond to it very quickly. So it's absolutely inevitable uh, that that you'll make mistakes. Yep. Uh, now it's right. It's quite right now to analyse the mistakes and. And, uh, and 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 uh, draw attention to them, but the broad strategy of quickly spending a huge amount of money was right, uh, and, uh, uh, and and that was right. Um, uh, the critical thing on fiscal policy, or two critical things: one is that uh, we keep it up until we're approaching full employment. And then we've got our eyes open to the possibility that we'll have to pull it back a long way. Uh, Do you think they'll keep it up until we reach full employment? It seems as if there's certainly noises being made about pulling it back already. Well, end of the month, isn't it, for JobKeeper, JobSeeker, if that hasn't changed? Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't keep on those, those same programs. Uh, yeah. we, we've got a shift. Uh, all, all of the programs so far have been about uh, uh, boosting consumption. Well, at least the good parts of the program have been about... We've got a shift towards uh, build, building incentives for uh, uh, e- expansion of production and uh, uh, and investment in the trade-exposed industries, the export industries. And why we've got to do that is if you have your whole expansion on the back of increased uh, d- domestic expenditure, mm. um, uh, government expenditure, or even housing expenditure for that matter... Uh, uh, you're running up uh, greater external debt, which uh, sooner or later is going to be a constraint, and it's going to be a constraint on living standards in future. It'd be different if uh, if the debt was funded by the Reserve Bank, uh, but to the extent uh, that it's building up uh, a foreign ownership of Australian assets, uh, which a lot of it was uh, through 2020, uh, then uh, you're, you're building up. Uh, debts that uh, will lower living standards uh, when when they're repaid. Mm. Uh, how quickly uh, you you need to repay them depends a, a lot on circumstance at the time. Uh, if you if when the time comes we've got very uh, full employment we've got very low levels of uh, 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 of investment so there's uh, surplus savings that may be appropriate for there still to be some government deficit at that time. That's to be uh, worked out at the time. But there is a risk that we won't do all those calculations very. 
uh, uh, precisely, and we'll pull back too quickly. Uh, but uh, it will be a, a mistake just to continue the consumption sort of expenditure, subsidising uh, holidays in uh, yep. in, in Whoop Whoop. Absolutely. If you build up debt for a holiday, it's, there's not a lot. But if you build up debt for building new factories or infrastructure or, or that, whatever it is, there's obviously... That, that, that's right. And, mm. uh, and, and then... You've got to get the right balance between fiscal and monetary policy. I'm very critical in the book of uh, monetary policy being tighter than other developed countries when we didn't have a stronger economy than other countries. Yes. Combination of uh, 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 whatever your fiscal policy is, uh, the easier your monetary policy, the lower your dollar. Mm. Uh, and uh, if you don't have a stronger economy than other developed countries, uh, uh, then um, uh, your, your exchange rate will be unnecessarily high and you'll be removing distance you'll be removing incentives for investment in export industries investment in the future you've got to have a balance between the two if you if you want to get to full employment with a manageable level of debt mm. so Ross you you noted that we're still accumulating a lot of foreign debt uh, through fiscal expenditure uh, how much more aggressive would you be with the RBA uh, if you were in control of that lever uh, to mitigate that with with uh, more money printing? Uh, the, the answer is uh, March from 2013 to the, to the end of... <laughs> yes. <laughs> to the end of 2020, uh, the world has changed. Uh, the, the governor made a series of speeches in the first half of February, mostly in one week, I think, that, yeah. com- that, that brought us almost up to... The European and North American uh, approach to quantitative easing, not quite, but since then they've gone even further. Uh, and and, uh, and have they gone far enough? Is the question. Uh, well, they haven't talked much about how long they'll sustain. The current level of uh, uh, reserve bank buying of bonds is very high, uh, so uh, I, I wouldn't criticise this last week's level. Um, but uh, what happens next is the important thing, as it is in fiscal policy. But if they go uh, but but I'm I'm not critical of the of the last couple of weeks policy. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, that might go far enough. And, and actually, I've got, I've got a question along those lines because you know David and I speak a lot about you know the RBA being sort of behind the curve, behind everyone else, sort of like following what everyone else was doing a few years ago and just repeating repeating what they you know these guys did that. And so, um, whereas the other day they came out and they doubled the amount of longer-term bond buying and the European Union gave a few comforting noises, but it was crickets from, from the US. Do you think the RBA would feel as if they were sort of saying, come on, everyone, let's go this way, and then nobody came and they're sort of like, oh, just a minute, we're, we're too far out in front, we need to we need to back back and get closer to, to everyone else? Or do you think they're, they're happy to be... Well, well the, the governor has articulated very clearly now a commitment to uh, maintaining monetary expansion until we've got full employment and measured appropriately full employment when you've when the labour market's so tight, the wages, wages are rising, rising. Yeah, yeah. in the marketplace. That's the proper uh, measure of full employment for, for, uh, and for first time since uh, Nugget Coombs, uh, the, the, the Reserve Bank's articulating the objective of full employment in uh, an economically uh, rational way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, uh, I, having uh, come to that point, they may hold their ground. Uh, uh, and uh, and uh, keep monetary policy where it is uh, until we do have uh, uh, real scarcity of uh, labour, real wages uh, rising in the marketplace. 
Yeah, because I guess I guess especially if you're starting to see, say, say there's another, there's a pretty big package that's going through the US, and say there's another infrastructure package coming after it, and they are actually starting to get some positive signs, and, and their central banks backing off, whereas over here it may be our our government's not doing the same. I just, I'm interested in that that thought process of saying, will we will we be prepared to stand on our own, or are we sort of more happier to? Well, for, through the dog else. days, we did stand on our own. On the wrong side, backwards. So, the problem with the RBA is not that they're pre- <laughs> not that they're uh, not prepared to stand alone, but that yeah. they were standing alone in the wrong place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, optimal debt. So, um, one of the, so yeah, jumping to so you, you speak a lot about the debt side. I guess one of the things I'm um, quite interested in is is the limits. So Australian household debt is, is, is much, much higher than what we've seen elsewhere. And I can sort of look at, um, say, European or, or US debt and go, well, that, that's, it's a fair bit lower than where it was at the fin- end of the financial crisis. If they sort of set in policies to try and ramp it back up again, maybe they'll be successful. I look at the Australian household debt and sort of say, look, it's pretty high. Um, yes, interest rates have come down, so, so there's a lot more affordability in it. Um, but it's, it seems that at some stage people will say, well, maybe I don't want a $2 million mortgage you know, on $100,000. Maybe I, maybe a million dollars was enough. You know, I, I just wonder, in, in your mind, is that a constraint on... Or how much of a constraint, I guess? Well, just on household debt, uh, mm. uh, alongside that unusually high indebtedness of average Australian households, we've got un, un, uh, unusually high uh, assets... Savings. Asset values. Mm. Uh, uh, so that uh, there's not necessarily uh, current uh, stress uh, uh, reflected in that. Yep. Well, the the vulnerability would come both for the asset prices and for the uh, uh, servicing of debt if you did get a substantial increase in interest rates. So mm. your question is really a question about the odds of that. Uh, no, it's probably not. It's, no, it's not. About, it's not about that. It's saying, well, let's say interest rates are kept where they are. But I, but I guess there's, I guess to me there's a psychological issue about saying, okay, I might be, I might have, you know, five or six percent interest rates, and I've got a, a three hundred thousand dollar mortgage, and I'm gradually paying it down. And I can see it, and I can feel good about myself. Now we've got, you know, interest rates of forty um, percent of that, um, and and it, I might be paying the same in interest, but it's, but now I've got a million dollar mortgage, and the prospects of actually paying that million dollars down is like, well. You know, somebody might be looking at it going, I'll never pay this off. Whereas a $300,000 mortgage, they can actually see where they'll pay off. And so maybe with a $300,000 mortgage, you take a few more holidays or you, you spend a little bit more elsewhere. Whereas with a million-dollar mortgage, it's like this... Take, take, take a overseas holidays and make the debt even bigger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, 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 I guess what I'm saying is, is there, regardless of the interest... If the, the interest payments on both those might be the same, but... Um, whether there's a psychological, no, no, you know what, I'm just not interested in any more debt. I, I don't think there is. Mate, uh, you, you put forward a hypothesis. I, yeah. uh, that I, I, my first reaction to that is there's not, 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 not likely to be much in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I think the times of vulnerability would be if interest rates significantly increase, then, of course, there would be vulnerability. And so yeah. the question is, what are the chances of that? Mm. Well, and it almost, it's almost a bit of circular, though, isn't it? Because if, if everyone's got all that debt, then you don't have to worry because you only have to put interest rates up 25 basis points and all of a sudden everyone's feeling the, the pain. Yeah. And, yeah. So what's your view, therefore, on uh, inflation, Ross? Hey. Uh, well, there's two, and I talk about this in the book, uh, there's two different stories. One is global inflation, uh, which first of all is US inflation, 
and uh, and then there's um, uh, Australian inflation independently of global inflation. I don't think there's a risk of Australia inflating independently uh, of the rest of the world, of the US and the rest of the world. Now, Europe, Japan, uh, Korea, uh, Europe, including the UK, uh, are much less, they don't have the same fiscal expansion as the US, uh, much less likely to be uh, inflationary. Um, so uh, let's focus on the comparison with the US. And I am saying that it would be a mistake while our labour market is uh, as weak as, as it has been in the dog days and is at the moment to uh, run monetary policy tighter than the US. And US is, uh, Powell, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, Chair, chair is, um, he, he's articulated a commitment to, to keeping the, uh, uh, the, the, the smivet open until uh, uh, they've had a period of uh, inflation above the target level uh, for long enough to to bring them into the target on average. So that's a commitment to a long period of monetary expansion. Now, before that's over, it could get inflationary. I think it would be a mistake for us to to bet against the Fed, to stand against that wind. Uh, uh, and uh, and so uh, I, I wouldn't run tighter monetary policy than them in the, in the period ahead, given where we are. Uh, and... Uh, uh, that means if the U.S. gets inflationary, there's some risk of uh, some inflation coming here. Uh, uh, I wouldn't uh, see that as uh, a major focus for policy action uh, un unless we were uh, at full employment. Uh, if we were, uh, then we w would have to uh, uh, pull back. Uh, really important, and I emphasize this in the book, that we don't uh, pull back on an overheated economy in future in the same way as we did in the past, simply by jacking up interest rates. That, mm. that gave us the Whitlam-Fraser recession. It gave us the uh, the, the, the Hawke-Keating recession. Uh, it gave us the um, uh, the Fraser-Howard recession. Uh, um, uh, and they're pretty nasty. Uh, and because uh, the markets have seen us do that number of times they presume that we'll do it mm. and when you do that you jack up the exchange rate to uncompetitive levels mm. uh, just when you need a uh, manufacturing a, sector a, a more competitive uh, exchange rate uh, and uh, uh, and expectations that we'll do that again will inhibit investment now because no one's going to invest in processing iron uh, twiggy, well except Twiggy Forest to, uh, for whom a uh, a few percent on the exchange rate one way or another doesn't make much of a dent in uh, in wealth but uh, 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 the general run of investors can be very cautious about it, uh, investing in export industries if they see the possibility of uh, higher interest rates jacking up the exchange rate sometime in the future so I think we need to be articulating now uh, an approach to tightening fiscal policy mm later on so that everyone knows there'll be a balanced tightening of fiscal and monetary policy. It won't all come in higher interest rates and a higher exchange rate. Mm. I'll just go back to a point you made earlier about, and you make this quite strongly in the book as well, about one of the inputs into the dog days was the transition in the uh, immigration program. And we can see the Morrison government looking to reboot that already, uh, probably along similar lines. Uh, and you, you talk about the possibility of a little bit of inflation trickling in here from the US uh, if they get their fiscal boom going and the long monetary expansion. So um, do you think uh, 
how difficult will it be in current circumstances for the Morrison government to ramp up immigration uh, and and how heavily do you think that that would weigh on a possible recovery in wages here? Uh, you can ramp up immigration a long way from where it is now to getting back to the levels of the dog days. Yes, you can. <laughs> there was negative immigration last year yep. and I spread somewhere, it might have been in macro business, that there was negative uh, uh, immigration in January. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, what I'm saying is we, should, we shouldn't uh, stop immigration. Uh, we should do two things. One, uh, establish now uh, a commitment to a moderate level of immigration. I'm suggesting going back to the sort of levels of the 90s, adding about half a percent per annum to the Australian population by immigration compared with 1% during uh, the dog days. Uh, and uh, I'm also suggesting a, a reversal of the big change in immigration policy in the 21st century, the shift to temporary migration. I, I think that's been particularly damaging for wages. Um, uh, uh, it's led to uh, unskilled labour in the bush, which uh, used to be the uh, the underpinning of the living standard of, of, of people with not very good education and skills in the bush, Australians. Uh, but now, uh, no, uh, no, no, no farmer or small business in the bush uh, thinks about training an Australian. That's that's a, uh, that's hard work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you you bring in a, a backpacker from Europe uh, or uh, or from the Pacific Islands or uh, some other category of uh, of temporary worker, and uh, uh, and you don't need to go to all the trouble of uh, training uh, a young Australian. And around the uh, around the cities, um, uh, the unskilled jobs are overwhelmingly done by uh, uh, temporary migrants these days, and uh, uh, I think that's a, uh, a bit, uh, that was a big drag on uh, real wages, probably especially in the resources boom. It's, we didn't get we had the biggest b- uh, investment and uh, uh, terms of trade boom in Australian history in the China resources boom and real wages hardly went up at all. Uh, I, I think that... Um, well, one, of the, one of the oddities of the debate was that we were very... Uh, well, the government and, and the press were very explicit about uh, high immigration as a way of containing wage inflation during, yeah. during the resources boom. Uh, but then suddenly afterwards, when we had diminishing investment... Uh, then the same immigration regime suddenly didn't impact wages, you know, which was which is all a bit silly and uh, driven by vested interests, I think. Yeah, well, it certainly wasn't driven by uh, economic analysis and knowledge. Uh, yeah. Um, so, how big a drag uh, would it be? I think if we if we went uh, back to the immigration patterns and levels of the dog days, so uh, it would be a, it would substantially delay return to full employment and rising wages, but. Uh, uh, there's plenty of room for uh, uh, for having a moderate objective, changing the mm. composition, go back towards more long-term migration, uh, and uh, at the same time uh, setting a level of migration that we know uh, is consistent with uh, rising incomes of ordinary Australians. And, and, and just in, in the wording of this, um, I need to get this right for how you're talking about what would be to word it, do you think the government will come to this conclusion on their own or do they need more political pressure to get there? Well, uh, I, I actually think that if they tried quickly to go back to uh, uh, 
the, the dog days levels of immigration and temporary immigration, there'd be a big political reaction against it. So, mm. uh, but we're so far from that that you won't get that reaction soon. Mm. Well, well, maybe four, five, seven visas. There doesn't seem to be any movement there yet, though, on, on that side. Uh, to, to modify to modif- to, to Yeah, yeah well, no one's coming in on them. Mm. Um, my suggestion is uh, that, that for all those, those types of temporary visas where you're supposed to be... Uh, um, uh, uh, only recruiting uh, uh, scarce and valuable skills that, mm. that we say you can't employ anyone on those visas for less than average weekly earnings. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I thought that was a good suggestion. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yes, so uh, that uh, you have a number of farmers speak. The, the National Party will be up in arms against that. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, not all farmers, uh, uh, and uh, uh, and when you explain the situation. Mm. Now, uh, then uh, you, you'll have less opposition. And and when you join that to one of my other suggestions, the, the minimum basic income, uh, mm. ch- changing the nature of uh, Social Security and uh, taxation arrangements, integrating the two around the idea of minimum basic income, mm. there'll be less upward pressure. It'll be easier to recruit uh, young Australians uh, uh, for unskilled uh, jobs. For example, in the bush, yes. uh, because uh, it, 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 it's a, basically a bit of a subsidy, effectively, for some of those roles. Yeah, the, the, uh, if their income is, is below the level uh, at which uh, uh, you, the, you've paid back in tax what you've taken and the minimum basic income, then you, then you get a bit of a top up, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I think that'll make it easier to get people into unskilled work generally, but uh, especially in the bush. Yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you on on that front. Um, I've always had a bit of a uh, so you spoke that, that that being untaxed, and in, to me, whether it's untaxed or taxed, you know, just slightly higher, or it doesn't really make that much of a difference. But I'm, I'm actually interested in that role of saying, you know, in terms of as you're starting to head down the MMT path, of saying, well, if we gave the the RBA the, the, the ability to top that payment up with a taxable, you know, just to say, okay, well, demand's a bit light. We've already lowered interest rates as far as we want to lower them. You know, let's let's top up everyone's UBI and let's make it twenty grand for a year, or let's you know whatever it is until we get to the to the next level, um, do you see that as a? You know, a, a well, what's I do. A, what the floor is in that? Yeah, I, I, not exactly that, but a variation on that theme. I, I do say that uh, uh, we, we would do well to put in place mechanisms that tighten fiscal policy uh, when we've got full employment, mm. and do that fairly automatically, or at least give an independent body yes. uh, some authority over that, and. Uh, uh, one problem with the RBA being independent but, uh, and given a responsibility for macro stability, but only one lever, uh, that if you've got inflation, they'll pull that and you jack up the exchange rate and uh, and, yeah. and, and uh, tell Toyota to go home. Uh, and uh, uh, if uh, you'd call it something else, I call it an economic stability board. Hmm. Uh, but if that had in front of it, some fiscal levers as well, mm. and across the board increase in tax rates of five percent or ten percent, or reduction, a, co- a reduction in tax rates accompanied by a top up of uh, the minimum basic income mm. uh, that they can use uh, within uh, broad policy parameters uh, to to either pull back an excessive boom, mm. uh, so you're not only jacking up interest rates, or to uh, uh, to to uh, provide some automatic stimulus when it's needed. Yeah, because because yeah, for me at that stage, then you can say, well, effectively, if it's taxable, then 
you're helping the government at the same time as helping people, but also you could get to the stage where you're actually saying, well, maybe our minimum wage, minimum interest rate shouldn't be zero. Maybe it should be two or three percent, and have all these other levers to actually to keep you away from that zero bound where you start to jack asset prices. To yeah, I, I, two questions there. I think we need the fiscal lever as well as the monetary lever. So that's yeah. a, that's a good that's point. A good that. That's a good yeah. point you're making. Uh, I think we've got to be careful in setting our minds against zero interest rates uh, because. Uh, it may be if if the yeah. if in the world as a whole people are wanting to save mm. more than they're wanting to invest. Yes. Uh, then you won't get full employment. You won't get economic growth mm. uh, unless you've got zero or negative interest rates. That's just an economic fact of life. Well, you know, I'm certainly not against you on that. But on that side, I'm just saying, in some way, of throwing so much fiscal that you don't need to get to that level. But but anyway, let's leave that aside because that's that's probably hypothetical. Negative interest rates. The, the RBA has obviously spoken a lot about saying it doesn't want to go there. Do you think the? I, I, I think that's to? silly to say you don't want to go there. Uh, uh, the the, the uh, a number of countries have done it, and the IMF did a little bit of a study. Uh, I, I noticed in one of their blogs a couple of weeks ago from the IMF that they've done a bit of a study of interest rate, negative interest rates, and they work much like falls in movement from zero to negative. It moves much. Much the same as as a fall when interest rates are positive. Uh, uh, of course, yes, it does have some uh, uh, positive impact on asset values. Mm. That's a different question. Uh, David and I, in uh, way back in the book about the Great Crash, said that you've got to deal with that problem through uh, uh, th- through, through macro prudentials. Mm. Uh, yes, uh, and, and, yeah. and you still do. Mm. As a, as a quick aside, would you would you slap APRA and the RBA back together? under the same roof or do you think they can operate effectively separate i think they work better uh together um in fact i'm saying put something else together put the macro uh, uh responsibilities of treasury back there as well uh, okay. into the one integrated uh, body so you've got one body choosing between the combination of interest rates uh Within certain or certain range, increases in or reductions in tax rates and uh, macro prudential. Yeah, mm. you're going to leave the politicians nothing but sexual harassment, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, they they've got the huge job of the, uh, well of setting average tax rates. Uh, the macro stability stuff is varying that, and you can have a big argument about more or less equity, higher taxes, and and more public expenditure or, or lower taxes and lower. T- uh, the, uh, that's a crucial. Uh, debate that has to be sorted out politically and that's not affected by these macroeconomic things and uh, and, and uh, on the composition of expenditure programs and tax programs that's all for the politicians what it does is is uh, leave uh, only the questions with real political content to the politicians uh, rather than uh, uh, having all of the political energy and time going on to questions that are actually better in, uh, handled by an independent body. Mm. Mm. So you mentioned it to me as well that, that during your time in central Queensland uh, that um, there was uh, something of a, of a groundswell of jobs uh, appearing in the new industries in renewable energy uh, and that you thought over time that this would overhaul uh, some of the their dependence on coal jobs, etc. Uh, so, just as a segue into into that as uh, part of the book as well, and this, and and your propositions for the superpower um, in energy, would you like to go there? Yeah, um, 
Well, the, the superpower story, that's, that was the book at the end of 2019, and I update that story and shows and show where that story fits into the macroeconomic story in this book. But Australia has immense uh, opportunity uh, in the zero emissions world economy because of two sets of resources. One, we've got by far the richest uh, renewable energy resources in the developed world uh, uh, per capita. Per capita is what matters in international trade terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, but abs- absolutely, probably, per capita by a country mile. Uh, and that means that if we don't mark it up, uh, and of course you can mark up anything, but if you don't mark it up, uh, we've got the lowest cost uh, energy in the world when the whole world's heading towards zero emissions. And the whole world is. Uh, first of all, the developed world in China, and that's a hell of a lot of the economically relevant world. That's the world in which prices are set for, for metals and uh, uh, other industries that uh, use a lot of energy. The decisive change there is Biden's election, whether the US is joining the other developed countries. We could hide with the US uh, when when that big country was standing outside the developed country consensus, but with the US not only joining it but leading it and Biden saying that they're going to make sure the rest of the world uh, uh, gets to zero emissions by 2050 as well as them. Well, in that world, uh, uh, there'll just be uh, very large opportunities for uh, uh, exporting uh, uh, um, energy-intensive goods. And we've got all those minerals. We're by far the world's biggest exporter of minerals that need a lot of energy uh, uh, to, to turn into uh, uh, final products, uh, aluminium or iron ore, by far the world's biggest exporter of both of those, uh, the natural place to turn them into metals in the zero emissions world economy will be in Australia using renewable energy. The other big advantage we've got is um, uh, carbon in the landscape is, is a very valuable resource in the zero emissions world economy. Uh, there's some parts of the world economy that will be hard to, to get to zero emissions. And, uh, and so for quite a long time, uh, countries will be looking for negative emissions for, uh, for offsets. So we can generate them much more in our farms, in our, in our coasts, uh, much more cheaply than other countries can, in our soils, in our plants, uh, in, in our uh, coastal uh, oceans. And in addition, um, the whole world will be making uh, plastics, uh, chemical manufacturers, things we currently make out of fossil carbon and hydrocarbon, uh, out of biomass uh, in the zero emissions world economy. And uh, uh, we, uh, we ca- because we've got uh, 10 times the level per capita of, uh, uh, of woodlands per person uh, that the developed world as a whole has, and the developed world's got a lot more than the developing countries have, uh, we've got a big advantage in producing biomass uh, for industry. So use these uh, um, opportunities well, and we can transform uh, the, uh, uh, the the Australian economy in the zero emissions world economy, and it's, and it's much more, it's much bigger and more sustainable than our advantages in the fossil energy economy. Um, you might think that uh, producing 40% of the world's iron ore, 60% of the iron ore imported into China, uh, plus being by far the main source of metallurgical coal. Uh, would give us an advantage in steelmaking, but it costs uh, no more for a ton of uh, Queensland or New South Wales metallurgical coal in Kobe or Shanghai as it does at Wyala. In fact, it costs more at Wyala. But it's not going to be like that with when the uh, when it's uh, renewable energy or hydrogen or other hydrogen carriers that's uh, the, the medium for uh, 
processing because uh, uh, the international transport costs of renewable energy in any of those forms are very high. It's going to be much more economic to use the resources at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's exactly where I wanted to lead. I've got a few charts up there I just wanted to run relatively quickly through. The the top ones, this one's just our um, one we've been running for a long time now. We've got much longer versions of it, but it's basically just saying, look, you know, uh, coal and gas um, and nuclear are all on these um, scarcity curves. You know, the, the more you need it, um, you got to dig deeper and, and things like that. And so... Um, those fix a pretty cost and the solar and and um, particularly solar plus battery um, is coming down dramatically in cost and and looks like um, you know, all the, all of the movements forward in terms of just increasing number of scale and all that type of things is just driving that cost lower um, and I sort of haven't put countries in here but but um, you know what you're saying there you know, obviously producing um, solar panel solar power in the middle of Australia is is a lot better than um, you get a lot more resources than what you do in the middle of London yeah um, and so that's sort of like the, the, the broad overview. It still se- it seems to me a lot of people seem to be very focused about where we are today on this curve, as opposed to where we're going to be in five years' time. And and that's you know I guess that's that's a little bit of an aside. But I guess the question I wanted to ask in terms of that transport side of it was um, sort of moving to the next few. Of, of, sort of, I'm stepping this way through. The, yeah, just before the you leave that yeah. last one, the problem yeah. isn't that people are, are looking at where we are today. They're looking at where we were <laughs> yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And as you said, it's that whole gas. It's a gas, you know, the gas is our transition fuel. is like, yeah, 20 years ago it was, but yeah. it's, it's time has passed. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because we didn't get on with the job of the transition early enough, we, uh, we, we lost the chance for gas. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I'm going, okay, so on the um, on the part about the, uh, if you've got a car, for example, so I'm just using big picture numbers. US has got using 22 quadrillion BTU of oil for, for motor vehicles, but they actually only need um, four quadrillion BTU of mechanical energy. You waste so much in a, in a, in a car engine that, and, and so then you come back to electric cars and you go, well, because they're getting, if they're getting their, their energy directly from sunlight, um, they they actually only need seven. So you actually need about a third amount of the energy is what you need. And so that doesn't actually, for me, the numbers then go, well, if, if you don't need as much, and even when you get quite aggressive out things, it doesn't seem to me that the the, the um, electrical grid actually needs to scale that much on an annual basis. It's sort of, you know, if you convert it across, it might be you know, 3 or 4% per annum. And if, even if you're quite aggressive about your rollout of electric vehicles, yeah, I, I, I've got. I think I've got some numbers in the book. Uh, okay. I, I think uh, if complete electrification of transport might increase electricity demand by about a quarter. Mm. Uh, uh, whereas the actual, as you say, the actual energy now we use on the road is uh, about as much as the electrical energy we use, but uh, we'd only need to increase uh, uh, the, the load by about a quarter. Uh, the, the, the electric car it uses energy much more efficiently mm. it uses a much cheaper form of energy mm. uh, you, you, once we get the technology right well the technology is there now once well once the, it's being the delivered, price, it's once the price gets down to uh, the right they, level they, they, yeah, yeah. people will be using it off their own roofs if they've uh, got their own roofs so a cheaper form of energy mm. uh, and uh, it's a much simpler motor so the capital cost of an electric car once you once it's made, once it's had as long a history and it's got the same scale, it's going to be a fraction of the cost, capital cost of a, an engine okay. for an internal combustion engine, because it's simple. Uh, uh, around about forty moving parts compared with 
nearly a thousand in an uh, internal combustion engine not doesn't take much maintenance mm. now th- that is a bit of a ch- structural adjustment challenge all these motor mechanics uh, yeah. won't, won't be needed so much but but there's lots of other things that will use their skills uh, so uh, but we do have to think of that structural adjustment so mm. it's, it's it's a real this one's a real no-brainer it's going to come much more quickly than people think yeah. uh, and uh, the countries that do it first will have advantages uh, we're actually the laggard uh, of the developed world. Yes. Can you, can you go to the next one? And sorry, the, so the final point of this was then, um, if you look at the battery side of it, uh, sorry, if you look at hydrogen in particular versus these, as you, as you say, okay, well, if, if you've got a direct charging model, you get sort of 95% from your, your car battery. Um, and then you go down to, a, if, you, if you have to send it back through AC and DC, it actually ends up only being about 75%. So you know, there's, a, there's a big benefit in terms of just going straight into your battery. Um, hydrogen... Um, because you got to do the electrolysis, and um, you know, you end up um, only fifty percent, and then the transport's a lot, a lot more. So I guess what I'm trying, where I'm trying to go to here is, so you do speak a lot about hydrogen, and, and I guess I'm, I'm just looking at these headline figures and going, well, hydrogen's roughly as as efficient as um, as fossil fuels once you get through the back and forth. But it is more of a, but 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 you still need to put energy in to get it. It's not you can you know, just dig it up at the ground and, and find it. It's yeah, it is. So I guess I'm, uh, and it seems like the storage is quite difficult. So I'm just I'm just interested in terms of the the hydrogen side, um, whether that's a potential in your mind with still a lot of um, hurdles to cross before it turns into something realistic, or or if it's something you think it's more certain that development. Because I sort of look at the big picture of solar and I go. I, I can't see how that's a problem, whereas I look at the big picture of hydrogen and sort of go, there's so many losses in there, I'm just not quite sure whether... Well, it depends, it depends what you're using the hydrogen for. Yeah. Uh, if you're using it for transport, mm. uh, then uh, it, it's got some disadvantages. It's also got some advantages. Mm. If you've got... It's more concentrated energy, then you can fit in a battery. Yep. So, uh, so uh, if you're taking a big load for a long if distance, uh, yeah. where weight's important, mm. then, uh, or if you're taking an aeroplane... Yes, uh, uh, and, and we're not there yet with a, a hydrogen engine for an aeroplane, but mm. uh, 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 but there, was, there could very well be some transport uses where hydrogen works. I, I, I think for the standard sort of use, driving a car around town, yep. uh, the, the battery will be hard to beat. But hydrogen's big use is, uh, and similarly for making electricity, uh, both the Japanese and the Koreans are talking about importing a lot of hydrogen for electricity. Right. Uh, that's going to, that's because going to, they don't have their own resources. Because they don't have their resources. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that's going to be expensive. Mm. Uh, and much less expensive than using the renewable energy directly in Australia. Mm-hmm. But where, where, is, where it's certain to be big in Australia, no doubt about it, is uh, where, where you're using the chemical properties uh, of hydrogen in place of the chemical properties of carbon. Yes. Uh, and two huge uses. Uh, one, turning... Uh, iron oxide, iron ore into iron metal, uh, where the hydrogen uh, um, molecule plays the same role as the carbon atom. Mm. Uh, and the second is uh, ammonia, which is the base for nitrogenous fertilizers and also explosives, and we use a lot of both of them in Australia. Yep. Uh, and uh, uh, at the moment, we transform natural gas methane. Uh, converted through uh, industrial processes into a mixture of carbon dioxide and hydrogen mm. uh, and, and, and that's how we make ammonia, take the hydrogen uh, under pressure and heat and make ammonia uh, very big emissions as you let out the uh, carbon dioxide and, uh, mm. 
Uh, but the alternative to that is uh, that the uh, hydrogen uh, uh, can be produced simply put by running renewable electricity through water. That gives you electricity. Oxygen is a waste. It's got some uses. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then you you put the hydrogen through the back end of the process, which remains the same as making ammonia, uh, the the old Haber Bosch Bosch process that uh, the Germans developed in the First World War. Uh, so uh, uh, the, the hydrogen is going to have big industrial uses in Australia, no doubt about that. It'll have some transport uses. It will have some peaking power uses. Yeah. How big the transport and peaking power? Uses um, are uh, is not certain. Uh, might be relatively small, but the, the total hydrogen story is going to be very big. Yeah, and as I said, it's more likely to. It's 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 much more effective if you're using the hydrogen basically where you're producing it. So you're producing it here and then using it rather than saying, yeah, let's produce it here, stick it in a boat, and send it all over Europe or, or something like that, because that's where you start to lose the whole. Yeah, and you certainly it certainly won't be economic anywhere near it to. Uh, put in a boat or turn into ammonia and put in a boat and take the hydrogen out of the other end, that won't be uh, competitive with Australia mm. in, in industrial uses. Yes. If you need it for, to run transport or uh, uh, keep a house warm, mm. uh, you've got to have some form of energy and, and renewable energy is expensive because they don't have opportunities for that, yeah. uh, then importing from Australia uh, will have a role. Sense. There'll be some of that especially to uh, uh, the big industrial countries in our region which don't have renewable alternatives yeah and the, the, i know you've got to finish up yep, yep. um yeah i don't know I, I, I do you want to just flick quickly i think we've hit most of these other ones the other questions oh evictions and bankruptcies is the only one uh, major one i wanted to ask you um do you think so so we've got this big debt issue initially there was all this issue with will, will the um, bankruptcies turn into a debt crisis and and push on but we we let people push out their mortgages and 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 it seems as if that that problems we're through that problem at the moment and and the debt bubble will just get bigger and the next crisis might be bigger but but it seems as if it's not going to turn into a debt crisis at the moment is that i think with these very low interest rates and even lower than they were this time last year uh, i think that that's not going to be one of the things we're worrying about in the year or two ahead yes yeah excellent i think most of the other ones we hit Excellent. Thank very you good. very much for your time. We okay. really appreciate the uh, yeah having you on and your insights. Good, yeah. to, good to be uh, with you again, talking about these issues, and look forward to keeping in touch. Excellent. Good on you, Russ. Yeah, and sure. we'll, um, we'll make sure we've uh, put all the relevant links in our show notes and uh, we'll share with your audiences as well. So thank you again for coming in. Look forward to getting you in soon. Okay. All good. the best. Thank and you. And we better catch up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll very good. Um, okay, very good. So uh, we'll jump across to our uh, investment uh, outlook and wrap-up. Damien. Yeah, so I think there's, you know, obviously coming out of that, there's there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of moving parts. I, th- I think it's safe to say a lot of the stuff Ross was talking about is, is, is aspirational still at the moment. Mm-hmm. And as he said, um, you know, use my words right to keep him happy on that. Is uh, we still need to do more work to to convince the polity um, about about what needs to be done. Uh, I think there's a uh, there's obviously support. I think in in what Ross is saying in terms of um, uh, the inflation side mm-hmm. is that there's a lot more work to be done, um, and, and it's not it's not impossible that. Um, you know that that governments can manage to turn this into an inflation story, and, and the US is a place to watch for that. But um, yeah, the, the default at the moment is that um, 
it's deflationary. Uh, we've got a lot of deflationary forces, some very short-term inflationary forces, but the deflationary forces sort of kicking through later on. Um, the uh, the complication for investment markets for that is that um, uh, longer-term rates do tend to be priced off the US. Um, and so we're really coming back to now how dedicated is the uh, the, the RBA in terms of keeping our long-term rates low, um, because long-term rates in, in Europe are, are, are negative um, in many countries um, and, and a lot lower than the US, whereas Australians rate, Australian rates have pretty much been tied to the US. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, you know, it's, it's that... It's, as we said, going forward, it's at the issue of if you can create inflation in the US and long-term rates go up over there, but you can't get inflation because of political choices in Australia and you have the um, uh, a dedicated RBA in terms of keeping rates low, then you could very well see much lower rates. And so that's where you know a lot of our focus is going to be on the on the investment. Um, for now, we're sort of we've been playing the story as if we're going to see inflation and and rotating into value stocks and and really limiting our um, our bonds to to the very short end of the bond curve. Uh, the question going forward will be at what stage we we flip. Um, for for now, we're we, we're we're pretty comfortable with that as a, a position. Of saying we'll play play it as if there's inflation coming, but but be ready to change that view um, because we we do think the default is is a bit of um, uh, deflation. Okay. Yep. Wonderful. Uh, the actually just as just as you were uh, running through that inflation uh, answer there, or run through it, we've got a question here. Do you guys expect to in, that that the inflation to keep prices rising post pandemic? And if not, when do you think prices will come down? I feel like you might have just answered that one. So um, yeah, be comfortable with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's another one in there about the uh, power prices. Um, uh, uh, around South Australia, South Australia there's yeah. the highest power prices in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. South Australia does have some of the highest. Power prices in the world, so so he's absolutely right. Um, I think if you get the issue to go back to with um, that graph we were showing there is is that idea that um, solar plus batteries is is a falling curve, mm. and we're reaching that level now, and um, it's actually one of the levels where South Australia is because batter, because prices are so low, sorry sorry so high. That's why they've managed to put batteries in to the to because um, they've picked it up early. Exactly. Yep. So, whereas, um, but well, it's it, it's economic because the prices are so high. Yep. Whereas, if you go to the US, it, there's not many places where it's economic because the prices are so much lower. Mm. And so, um, yeah. So I think that's it's not, one it's of the, not the it's not there yet. It's got to be cheaper enough to um, to battle with the incumbents. Exactly. And yep. so, so it's it's basically it's, it's a bit of a view of the future. Yep. Is what you're seeing happening happening in in there. And as as those prices keep coming down for batteries and 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 for solar. Um, the rest of the world will start looking, or the rest of Australia first will start looking like more like that. The US is is a long way behind because the pro, uh, electricity prices are so low over there. Mm-hmm. You you're talking, um, you you'll be seeing it in Europe and, and other places first before you finally get through to the effects on the US is going to be one of the last ones. Absolutely, and it's not often that I hear um, the words "South Australia" and "a view to the future" used in the same sentence. So well done, <laughs> That's you've, right. uh, you've, I'm sure you've made a few people happy in in South Oz. Yeah. Fantastic! Thanks very much, Damien. Uh, Ross has had to shoot off with with David, um, so uh, they've they've shot through. But what we will do is jump through to our viewer question of the week, uh, and we'd love to know what is uh, what your thoughts are on what Australia's number one priority is uh, for a recess uh, in in vain of today. It doesn't have to be something we've spoken about today, but we'd really enjoy. Uh, reading your comments and, and viewpoints on uh, where you think we could take the opportunity to uh, to have a reset going forward uh, in the post-pandemic world. So uh, coming up next week, uh, we do uh, then take a look 
at where we are in a potential commodity super cycle. As the world is tiptoeing its way out of the coronavirus pandemic, the consequent surge in the price of energy, metals and crops is highlighting the strengths uh, of some economies and the vulnerability of others. Uh, there is a talk of a new com commodity super cycle, which is raising the spectre of more damaging inflation down the line. But how likely is the current boom to continue? So tune in next week, Thursday, the 25th of March at 12.30pm for our thoughts on the state and prospects of commodities into 2021. Thanks to all of you who uh, have tuned in today and watched in for a uh, live for another great episode. And of course, to those who have asked some questions, I uh, hope you've taken away some great ideas. And if you haven't already, feel free to click like on the video to give us some feedback. Uh, if you'd like to see more of our content, head on over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content to start to date on news from us. Follow us on social media. And finally, if you know anyone who gets something out of today's episode, let them know about it, share with a friend and help our show grow. Thanks again for tuning in from myself, Tim Fuller and the team, and we'll look forward to catching you with the next one. Cheers.